Hi, this is Rachel Pacheco, author of Bringing Up the Boss, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Rachel Pacheco. Rachel Pacheco, PhD, is a management author, lecturer, and researcher at the Wharton School. She is passionate about teaching people what it takes to be a great managers and coaching executives and leaders on how to build thriving teams and organizations. At Wharton, Rachel conducts research on management, specifically on power and conflict, as a member of the teaching faculty. She's also a founding faculty member of the Entrepreneurship in Education program at the University of Pennsylvania. Rachel serves on the uh, board of advisors for numerous startups, primarily in the digital health and wellness space, a former chief people officer on the executive teams of startups in the healthcare and big data space. She earned her PhD and MBA at the Wharton School and holds a BS from Georgetown University. Rachel lives in Washington, D.C. is here to talk about her book, Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Lessons for New Managers. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Phil. So great to be here. Hey, it's great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I'm going to pick a really cliched answer, and that's my mom. No one else has mentioned your mom before, so this is unique. (laughs) That would be a little bit weird if someone else had mentioned Sandy Pacheco. Besides just the fact that she was formative for, for who I am as a person, she has the most incredible work ethic and loves to work, brings so much passion to whatever she was doing, and has this hustling mentality, which I've adopted in, in terms of who I am and, and, and how I like to approach work. She showed a lot of a lot of grit, is was always looking for the next thing to do or the next kind of venture to go for. And, and she really rubbed off on me in terms of that work ethic. What was her career when you were growing up? She taught English as a second language at um, the local community college. So primarily focused on refugees and other um, immigrants coming into the community and helped them learn English and really helped folks on their new life and new path in the U.S., which is really quite wonderful. Is there an example you can recall of yourself seeing her work ethic, seeing how she prepared and cared for her work and the time that she put into doing it that you can remember referencing early in your career and saying, I know what it takes to be successful because I watched my mom and making decisions about how you were going to apply yourself. Yeah. A couple of recent examples come into play because though she's retired, she has about five additional jobs and keeps finding new ones, whether it's ushering at the the theater or working at the CSA or or tutoring folks in English. But I think the one that sticks in my mind is we had a family paper route. I grew up with four brothers and each of us had to to do our stint cycling through the paper route. I grew up in Massachusetts and it would be snowy and freezing rain and cold. Every so often, one of us would just, we just couldn't do it. We were just tired and cranky and she was just such a trooper. would go out and do the paper route and drag us along and continue pushing forward. So this idea of when you take a job, you're committed to it, you're loyal, you get the job done, you serve your customers, whether they're big companies or the neighbor on the paper route. And and once you've committed to something, you're going to do it. So that really sticks with me. Probably the scars from being 
freezing all the time in the Massachusetts winters, but it's one of my favorite examples of her perseverance. I remember those days for myself as well, balancing the large bundles of papers on the handlebars, my bicycle as I'm going through the dark, especially on Sunday when everything was three or four times as large. Do you remember just pushing through that for yourself and how that experience led you to think that I have three tests coming up in the finals, maybe while you were a student saying, I can handle this. Just having that confidence from doing something hard when you were younger. Absolutely. That feeling of everything is temporary. So it might be really miserable for this hour that I'm walking through the storm delivering these papers, but it'll soon be over. The test will soon be over or this horrible week of meetings and work and deliverables. It will be over at the end of the week and things will look really different in 24, 48 hours. So I really try to stick to that ethos of we can do hard things because they're temporary. It's not hard to imagine how this experience led to your interest in entrepreneurship and teams working effectively together. But tell me, when was it that you realized that this was going to be the focus of your professional career? About seven years ago, I actually had taken a leave of absence from my PhD program and started working with a healthcare startup as their chief people officer wonderful group of people, everyone really committed, smart, hardworking. But what I immediately realized upon joining was that the managers, the, the folks who were now responsible for leading teams and leading individuals, had no skills or no understanding of how to manage. They had never managed before. They were early in their careers. As an organization, we didn't have time or resources to train them quickly enough for what they were doing. So at that point, I just saw how much the, the lack of capabilities and managers were holding the company back. That's when I said, oh, there's something here because we are not unique in this struggle at all with management. So that's when I really started writing and finding research around what does it take to make a manager are great and what can they start doing immediately to practice those management skills? Because we didn't have the time or the resources to send folks away for eight weeks to a wonderful exec ed class or something like that to get those skills. We needed to build them immediately on the job. So that's where I really started focusing on how can we help these managers scale as our company is growing? That's a fascinating revelation. I'm curious, how large was the company? And was there a shared awareness that this was a need to have that training in order to take the company to the next level. When I joined, the company was about 40 people and we brought on another 35 in the, in the first year that I was there. It's interesting. The question of was there a shared awareness or a shared need? There was an awareness that something was holding us back and that managers were struggling. But as I often say, founders, CEOs, they often don't become founders or CEOs because they're excellent at managing. They often become CEOs and founders because they're visionaries and can create incredible products or are incredible salespeople. So it was a bit of an awareness of we're lacking something, but the, the founder and the CEO wasn't quite aware that this was the piece that was really problematic because he himself wasn't aware of his manager shortcomings or his management shortcomings, which is often, unfortunately, I love him dearly, but unfortunately is often the case with founders and CEOs. That's very true. And many people listening to this are saying to themselves, I wonder if our managers, our senior managers, 
management team especially, has an awareness of the relationship between that lack of awareness of the need for managers to be trained and the difference that training can make to bring people up to speed with the best practices, how to develop rhythms within an organization, how to set expectations and be explicit and all those other things that really doesn't take that long to train in and the performance of the organization. Because so many people will say, just try harder, just put in more effort. What is the fallacy of putting in more effort when you're going in the wrong direction? It's such a good question. The, the fallacy with management is often that, especially when we become new managers, many best practices in management or what we should do are counterintuitive. A couple, for instances, first is we think that we can motivate people through increasing their compensation in two fallacies there in, in counterintuitive ways of thinking. First is that we assume that everyone likes to be motivated the same way and often the way we like to be motivated. So I think, oh, I will jump through hoops to get an additional $500 bonus through this work. But that's not how everyone likes to be motivated. Some people would be far more motivated by challenging new project or words of appreciation from their manager. The second thing with compensation, and this is where it's really counterintuitive, oftentimes when we pay people more money, it actually decreases their motivation because we're putting a monetary value on something that someone might have just enjoyed doing intrinsically. Oh, Bill, you love supporting our internal recruiting efforts. So we're going to give you this $400 bonus at the end of the year because you're great at internal recruiting. Then the person starts to think, wait a minute, I've put in an additional 200 hours of work to support internal recruiting. Are they valuing that 200 hour at whatever the math is, 50 cents an hour? It decreases motivation when often when we put a monetary value on someone's activities. So managers can really wreak havoc with things like compensation and motivation because it's counterintuitive to what we believe or what we've heard. Rachel, it's such a great point and a great example because so many people think it's so easy. Let me show them some appreciation by giving them a spot bonus. It has these unintended consequences, especially when people make, say, $75,000 a year. When they've got their cost of living covered, they're doing well, they have excess. One of the best perspectives I've learned is that money buys you the freedom to not think about money. And once you're over a certain level of being able to enjoy a, a good middle-class lifestyle, style in most of the United States, then you've got to really work harder to be thoughtful in appreciating people and also cultivating and channeling their talents differently. It's not the same as managing people who come up with a new system in factory work, for instance, where it just makes the workflow easier. But here we're dealing with more abstract things. What is the difference that people need to think about? They're dealing with people who are more senior and they're dealing with people who you want to show appreciation, but they understand that it's not just monetary. Where should they start to think about how to offer those rewards of people who are more skilled and experienced. I actually want to cite some uh, this amazing research study that highlights this, and that's managers were asked, what do you think motivates your team members? So here's a list of 10 things. What do you think motivates your team members? And the manager's top three responses were good wages, job security, in promotion opportunities. They asked the same question to employees. The top three for employees were appreciation, feeling in on things, and an understanding attitude from their manager, which 
were the absolute bottom three things for the manager's responses. It's completely flip-flopped. So I use that first to highlight and illustrate that this idea of an employee understanding, feeling in on things, understanding how their work impacts the broader mission or strategy of the company is a huge motivator. And just having an understanding attitude and empathy where the employee is coming from, having that empathy from a manager is also huge. So that's the first thing. The second thing for motivating people that is really important to remember is that we each have a unique motivation profile. So Bill, you might be really motivated by the profile of power, which means you love competition. You love kind of these tasks where you might win. You might be a salesperson, whereas I might be motivated by affiliation, which is that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm so motivated by being part of a team. So the first thing for a manager to actually understand the unique motivation profile of their team members before they think at all about how do I structure rewards and incentives? Because if we don't understand how each of our team members is motivated, what their unique profile is, there's going to be a huge disconnect in how we reward them. How would a manager listening to this start to understand it? It's part of uh, three parts. I remember it was the Kincaid who did this study, power affiliation. How would someone who is looking to understand the profile do this from a very basic way? I'm sure there are things that that they could observe. And I'm sure that there are some questions they could ask to understand to what degree are the priorities with power, affiliation, and achievement for one of the people on their team. You hit the nail on the head. It's observation. See which employee cares the most about winning at the company softball game because that's usually someone who's motivated by power. But no, and also asking. What is so important is a manager, back to this kind of empathy and understanding, is getting to know their employee on a deeper level and asking, what do you love most about your job? Or what kind of work gets you most excited? What kind of work do you struggle with? Getting into that dialogue with the employee to understand what's going to motivate them. There isn't a silver bullet. It's really having that conversation, that two-way dialogue in hearing from the employee and really listening when they tell you, this is what I love about my job and this is where I really struggle when I'm trying to get work done. Misconception. People think that they have to be in the same room in order to have this conversation. It's impossible to have remotely. The past two years has taught us nothing is impossible remotely, including weddings and game time and all that kind of stuff. You can absolutely have it. You can have it over video. You can have it over the phone. You don't need to be in the same room at all. That's important because everyone listening to this could be thinking about the people on their team and thinking, how can I be more open to asking the question, listening to the reply? And everyone could be thinking, if I'm asked this, how do I want to reply to convey the information that's clear and accurate about my situation? When you were a chief people officer, you probably had this conversation. Can you share an example of what it was like to begin to ask this question and what you learned from doing it many times? Let me provide an example. I was interviewing a gentleman. His name was Mark. We were in the, the interview process and getting to know him through some structured interview questions. And one of the questions was, what do you love most about your current job? He lit up and he said, I really love my team. I'm going to be really sad. I'm excited about this new job, but I'm going to be really sad to, to leave my team. Immediately for me, that was a signal that, oh, Mark might be really motivated by affiliation. He's one of these folks that it really matters who his team is. Let me make sure as we go through the rest of the interview process that he's meeting other team members, understands how our team 
team operates, et cetera. That's the first thing is I think in interviews, you can start the conversation in the interview and see how folks react and what their answers are. The second is what I found that's worked really well is when someone joins your team, you ask these questions right off the bat in the kind of the get to know you onboarding part of becoming part of my team. So it's really easy to ask these questions up front versus two years from now or three years from now when the team member is like, why are you asking me this now? We've been working together for three years. So um, definitely still do it if you have team members that you don't know. But I would recommend as new team members come on board, make this part of your initial conversations as you get to know people. I don't think there's anything wrong with adding more than once in order to validate it. I think that it's also important to listen to the answers and also observe if somebody says, oh, I just love these stretch assignments that you give me. And they don't do such a great job on the stretch assignments. They maybe re- love being in on it, but they don't necessarily enjoy the extra work aspect of it, the achievement aspect of it. So I think there are refinements that come from observing for sure. I love how you encourage people to start with the questions just to see what they're responding to, to find other ways to let them know that they could be satisfied working on this particular team or in this particular company. Yeah. I would add one more thing Um, build to this is that often it's just as important to ask yourself these questions and be really clear for yourself because we're often biased as managers towards people who have the same motivation profile as us. So I'm drawn to and reward people in the same way that I like to be motivated and I like to be rewarded. Our own biases really come into play and I I could be blind to the fact that, oh, I have a huge need for achievement. Therefore, I'm going to reward my team members in an achievement-oriented way and promote and hold up folks who have that tendency towards achievement because that's what I'm used to and that's what I'm biased towards. So I would say start with actually asking yourself these questions and getting clarity around your motivation profile and then go ask your team members. That's an excellent point, Rachel. Tell me, in the book, you use the phrase, can you explain what that means and an example of the difference between a group that is operating as a team in name only and one that is actually a team? I was part of an executive team. There were eight of us and this was a kind of a 60-person company at the time in the wellness space. And eight-person executive team, and I say team with air quotes, because we were really just a collection of individuals, all bringing our own needs, our own objectives, our own motivations into the space, as opposed to thinking about what's best for the company, what's best for the entire organization. We were really just a collection of individuals doing what was best for each of us individually, as opposed to a group of people working together to achieve a common goal, where each has a role to accomplish something great. This kind of team and name only is this idea that we often have loose collection of individuals who call themselves a team, but actually don't function like a team at all. In some ways, would be better off just working independently because it's often less effective and more frustrating when you try to get certain work done as a team when it's actually not a team doing the work. What are some of the characteristics once a group of people become a team? You mentioned a couple of them. Is there anything else you'd add other than having common focus, common objectives, and shared values in order to move forward? Is that sufficient or is there something else that's necessary? I would say two things. First is that there is this concept that Patrick Lencioni writes about, and that's idea of the first team. And that's we're part of a team where our first level of obligation and loyalty lies with this. We're working to make decisions and make choices that optimize the benefit of this group as opposed to 
our functional area or our kind of individual silos. So a lot of times managers, understandably so, feel the most loyalty and obligation towards the teams that they manage. Then when they abstract up to the team of managers or the team of executives, they're saying, I'm going to push forward or make the best decisions or, or ask for the best decisions that serve my functional unit, as opposed to what are the best decisions for the organization. There has been tons and tons of research into what makes a great team. And it's been hard to coalesce around the special sauce or the special ingredients for a great team until recently. So about five years ago, Google did this incredible study that looked at almost 200 teams within their organization, which is really powerful because it was all within one organization. So we could control for what makes one team great at Google versus another team. And what Google found was fascinating. What they found was that great teams at Google had two primary ingredients. The first was a great team had explicit norms for how their team was going to operate. What was most fascinating was it doesn't matter what those norms are as long as everyone on the team is aware of and subscribes to the norms. So you have team A and they run a super tight ship and have an agenda and start every meeting on time and only talk shop and end everything on time and have follow-ups and to-dos and all that kind of good team hygiene as we think about it. Then you have team B who might join a little bit late. They spend 20 minutes talking about their weekends and sharing some personal things and they meander through their agenda and everyone kind of gets it as their own stuff. And both teams are successful as long as the norms are explicit. So everyone on team A knows that this is how we run as a team. Everyone on team B knows this is how we run on a team. And I'm sure we've all been part of this where we're in a meeting or on a team and one person has one expectation about how the meeting's going to run. The other person has another expectation and that's where conflict happens and that's where things fall down. But yeah. I hear you saying it's is that it has to be explicit. When the study at Google came out, were they saying, here's the list of how we operate teams. Here's the list of how we operate with our assignments. Here's how we delegate. Do they have these sort of bullet lists that help make it very clear to others? Because I'm imagining people listening can't point to or show a bullet yeah. list like this. Yeah. What was interesting was Google as a whole didn't have that list. They didn't say this is how a team should operate. It was team specific. So team A, the one with the agenda and the one with the meeting times, everyone on the team knew those explicit norms, right? Those written down explicit norms. And everyone on team B knew those explicit norms, even though those norms were completely different for both teams. What I like to tell folks is the best thing you can do for a team is write down your team norms and have everyone on the team look at them, agree with them or change, adapt, but have them be visibly written down where we can say, this is how this team runs. Because it just matters that the norms are explicit. It matters less what the exact norm is. The second aspect of having an effective team falls in support of that. Why don't you share with us what that is? The second aspect of uh, a great team is psychological safety. Psychological safety is made up of two components. The first is conversational turn-taking. So the idea that everyone on the team has a voice. Everyone believes that their voice matters and their voice is heard. It doesn't mean that everyone on the team has an equal voice. It's that there is turn-taking such that people can speak up when they need to speak up. The second component of psychological safety is empathy. That's understanding where your other team members are coming from. So 
we can understand uh, what you might bring to the meeting in terms of your history, your background, how you like to operate. And I can understand why you behave the way you do because of my empathy towards you. That creates huge psychological safety because we're giving people the benefit of the doubt. We know we're not making assumptions about how they operate. We rather have empathy um, and an understanding of why someone acts the way they do. And I like that point in particular because it's how it's used. It's sharing information so that people have an understanding and empathy towards how others are behaving. It's not to categorize or exclude them based upon their Myers-Briggs type or some other characteristic. It's just gaining an understanding that they grew up and had to always fight to be heard in meetings. So they may come across a little stronger when they feel like they're not being heard, even though we've created that space for them. Exactly. We're not creating false attributions about who someone is because of a certain behavior that might be different or different from ours. What's really important is to create that space so that people can share things and share what their thoughts are, their feelings, their hunches, and get it out because that all benefits people who are part of a team with a common set of values and objectives. You brought up a, a great story in the book called The Abilene Paradox. And in that people aren't being heard and their true feelings aren't being taken into account when decisions are being made. Can you share with me what that story is and how people could use that as a metaphor for recognizing when their team may be going in a, a wayward direction? Absolutely. Let me share a little personal story first that, that might hit home with some listeners. It's the idea that you know, about to go out to dinner in an event with friends and you're all throwing out restaurant ideas and no one quite puts forth a really strong preference. Go back and forth. There's wishy-washiness and you end up at really mediocre restaurant followed by a, a mediocre jazz concert. And you just look at her like, how did we end up with bad Italian in jazz? That's the crux of the Abilene Paradox. And the Abilene Paradox was born out of this story south of Abilene, Texas, where a family was sitting around a porch on a really hot day, nothing to do. The mom says, I guess we could go to Abilene. The dad says, okay, yeah, I guess we could go to Abilene. And the grandpa was like, but Abilene is really hot, but there's nothing else to do. Anyway, two hours later, they're stuck in a car driving to dusty hut Abilene and look around and say, why are we going to Abilene? This is far worse than sitting on our porch with our lemonade and our fans. So it's this idea that when we don't speak up and speak out and have the structures and the muscle around doing that on a team, we often end up with our worst preference. I find this to be most prominent in when we hire people. And we're in a hiring committee and we have three candidates. Candidate A, two people love, but two people hate. Candidate B, it's the reverse. And candidate C, everyone's mediocre on. We end up hiring candidate C and then look to each other and say, well, how did we end up with this person? They have no strengths. they completely mediocre. That's the Abilene paradox at play. Because that person was not offensive to the largest number of people. But no one's strong preference. It's also important to recognize that it's important to never have an even number of people on a hiring. It's <laughs> <laughs> also a good point. That's one of my favorite team norms is write down how are decisions made. And it's okay to say the person with the most power has veto authority or we're doing majority. We're not doing consensus. Write that down. Rachel, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Yeah, I can't wait. All right. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you who's someone who influenced or inspired you. You talked about your mom and how dedicated she was and the work ethic that rubbed off on you. When you were a teenager, Rachel, what was a song that you loved?
love. I loved, and this was my first CD as well. I loved Hootie and the Blowfish. Hold my hand. That's about all you're going to get. Rachel, each week you think about how to get the word out about the importance of teams. What's a channel you've found to be an effective way to reach a lot of people to let them know about your research, your understanding, and how they can lead better teams? I do two things. I I post on LinkedIn a lot with really short templates or tools that people can immediately download and use the following day in their work. So that's how I like to get the word out on, hey, here's something you can do with your team today or your team tomorrow to hopefully make things a little bit better. You're involved in so many different things, entrepreneurship, lecturing, being on different boards. What's a tool or system that you use to stay on track and productive? I use the really sophisticated pad of paper and pencil with checkbox and a to-do list that I cross off. And it's my family and, and, and partner often make fun of me because I have this just nonstop to-do lists all over my office. So I wish I had something a little bit more technologically savvy, but that's what works for me. That's what matters. It's what works for you. What would you say is the best advice you ever received, either personal or career? Show confidence up and vulnerability down. So to your team members, do not be afraid of showing your weaknesses, showing your emotion, letting the people manage know that you are fallible in trying to figure things out and struggling as well. So show them that vulnerability because it builds a huge amount of trust. What would you say is the worst career advice or business advice you ever received? Think about your 10-year plan. What's your 10-year plan and write it down. I've and never liked so that. Hard. Because it creates myopia. It doesn't, when you have a 10-year plan, it doesn't allow space for these things that might come up that are outside of your plan. And so we're so focused on meeting that 10-year goal or that 10-year objective, we might ignore these other wonderful things along the way that take us in a completely different direction that are far more p- powerful and rewarding. What's the book that you've given away the most as a gift that's not one of your own? Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And it's about how to really get in touch with who you are as a person and, and live in action and, and, and become a, a friend to the voices in your head. It's powerful. For me, it was life-changing. What's your definition of success, personal success? My definition of personal success is, have I touched someone's life in a way that is meaningful and has made an impact? If I have done something that in some way has changed someone's life for the better, then that's my definition of success. In your study of teams and helping people communicate both up and down and across, what's one thing you can observe or hear in a conversation that led you know that there is a lot of potential for an individual to be effective because of the way that they are communicating. When I hear someone talk about the team as a unit and as a we, I find that to be really powerful. Back to that first team where they're putting the team and the organization needs above their own motivations or their own objectives. I think, okay, this person, this person is thinking in the right way in terms of what they can do to contribute to make the overall organization successful as opposed to just their own their own objective function. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's created the most personal satisfaction or pleasure in your life? I have to say yes to everything that I could possibly say yes to or was is within my power. So this past year, I started saying no more in a much more deliberate way, um, often thinking first of 
how is this going to truly affect me? I've stopped saying yes as much and started saying no more. And it's made a huge difference in terms of how I live my life. What's an example of something you said no to? No, I've said no to uh, new client work. I've said no to a job offer that I would have taken otherwise. I've said no to social engagements that otherwise I would have um, gone to Herculean efforts to attend. Lots of examples of saying no. Rachel, you've shared so many great bits of wisdom and insight on my quest for the best today, Rachel. I want to thank you for joining me and sharing ideas. First of all, the inspiration of your mother, talking about the importance of listening and showing empathy and using the research in order to effectively build teams creating that psychological safety, being able to ask and really be aware of what people are saying, the awareness of being able to ask questions and bring people into the company that will really find satisfaction there, what, whatever their um, psychological motivation profile might be, and being aware of our own so that we are aware at least of not letting that bias affect us in the decisions that we make or how we reward or punish others. So for these and so many more re reasons, Rachel, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. It was so wonderful to be here. Rachel, where's a website where we can find out more about what's going on with you and bringing up the boss? My website is rachelpachico.com. I also have a Substack newsletter where I share more frequent tips. Rachel, we're going to link to rachelpachico.com as well as your Substack articles, as well as social media and places to buy the book, Bringing Up the Boss. Rachel Pacheco, author of Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Lessons for New Managers. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.